good morning to you. You all right? You all right. Well, hey, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. Uh, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. You picked a great Sunday to join us because we are going to look this morning uh, at where everything is headed. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 21. And I also want you to turn uh, to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to start in Hebrews 11, and then we're going to land here in Revelation 21 and 22 toward the very last few verses of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you around uh, where you are. It should be a black one. If you don't have one, that's our gift to you. Read it till the cover falls off. Come back and get another one from us. Revelation, I'm sorry, Hebrews is what I said, right? I'm trying to trick you. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Revelation, as you're finding Hebrews there, is one of those, um, one of those books that you kind of need to read once a year. Because what it does for us is it reorders uh, where we look in our day-to-day. -day. I had, um, I have grown up uh, in a variety of places in the U.S. I spent my first 15 years in Los Angeles, California. I spent the next group of years in Pennsylvania. I spent the next group of years in Washington, D.C. The next group of years I was in uh, Dallas, Fort Worth. And for the past 10, I've been in Charleston. Uh, I have spent a lot of time in a lot of different places in the U.S. as I have grown up. And uh, what I've found is that all of us, no matter who we are, always have a little bit of a longing for home. We have a, how many of you grew up in Charleston? Let me see, raise your hand. Yeah, there's like nine of you. <laughs> That's one of the things when you pastor a church in downtown Charleston. How many of you did not grow up in Charleston? Take a look. See, look at that. Look at that. You all got here as fast as you could to the number one. What are we, the number two city now? Did you see that? We're like the number two best city in America, which, do better. <laughs> do better at that. Uh, we, we all have, uh, you know, when you say home, uh, it conjures images, right? It conjures places you grew up. It conjures um, experiences you have had. Uh, it conjures memories that for some are uh, incredibly endearing, things that have formed you in the homes that you grew up. Some have experiences of home that were not fun, that were very difficult places. Uh, and the life of faith for the Christian uh, is an odd reality because no matter who you are, when you come to Christ and you recognize that Jesus has cleansed us from our sins and placed us into the kingdom of God, we gain this uh, relationship with the world that kind of discombobulates us. It, it unhinges our heart. And I want to show you that from Hebrews chapter 11 uh, and, and show you that sort of the forefather of the faith in terms of how he walked during his time on earth. Look at Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8. Hebrews 11, verse 8 says this, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. I'm encouraged by the fact that Abraham was not good with directions, aren't you? By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. Do you see in this passage, I'll finish it in a second, but do you see in this passage that, that the life of faith shapes how you spend your time on earth? It shapes the affections of your hearts and the desires of what you want out of this life, this 70 or 80 years that God has given you. It shapes your view of yourself about whether or not you will ultimately find your home here. You ever watch HGTV and people build their forever home? 
And I just laugh, because that's my, I'm a pastor, right? I'm a pastor, I have to laugh. I go, oh, you got 30 years. <laughs> I'm terrible at watching that, sh- that show. But it shapes how you understand who you are and where you're headed and where you're going and how long you'll be here. A life of faith is inherently uh, disconnecting from life on this earth. And I don't know where you are in your spiritual life, your spiritual walk. Maybe you walked in here and you haven't been thinking about heaven. You haven't been thinking about the new heavens and the new earth. You've been thinking about things that are pressing on you here today. I just had an $1,100 car repair. Oh, God. One of those things that takes the wind out of your sails. What have I been thinking about the past three days? The $1,100 car repair. I've been thinking about heaven. I got to get up and preach on it. Occupational hazard of being a pastor. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So what we're going to look at here is what the Bible all points to. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we're going to see today is the very last chronological verse of your Bible, forever and ever. And for many of us, our focus in this life ends up landing in places like Revelation 2 and 3, where we looked at the story of the churches, that you come in and you know our church has struggles, and your spiritual life has struggles, and there's things happening in the culture that make you feel like, are we going to win? And we don't understand what's going on, and and what is happening with the winds of change in our culture, and the varying doctrines, and the majority of our life lives in this church reality of Revelation 2 and 3. There are threats without, threats within, compromise all over the place. And where you and I need to set our hearts, though, is Revelation 21 and 22. We need to tune our hearts to to disentangle our affections and our eyes and our perspectives from the things we see on earth and look with eyes of faith toward what will accomplish, what God will accomplish in eternity future. And that's what this text is about today, okay? So let's pray and ask God for his grace and then we'll turn here to Revelation 21 and get into it. Father in heaven, as we come to you, Here this morning, we are people uh, whose eyes and perspectives are so quickly distracted from heavenly things. Would you give us the eyes of faith to see uh, the truth of heaven here in front of us on the page? Would it capture our attention and our affections? Would our emotions be stoked for that time when the curse is gone? When we see you face to face? When there is joy and worship and peace and comfort and safety and security in all of what we're going to see here in this passage. Father, we plead for your spirit to make these things true in the deepest corners of our hearts, the places where we're fearful to believe in them, in the places where we're discouraged right now or facing despair or uncertainty about your goodness toward us. We pray that the truth of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who in John 17 is praying for us that we would be where he is, that those truths would shape us here this morning. Would your word come alive in our hands and in our hearts and give us eyes to see what is here? We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. All right, Hebrew, uh, Revelation. Uh, Revelation 21, we're gonna start here in verse nine. We're gonna take a look at the new Jerusalem, 21 verse 9. Y'all there? Say yes. Good. Praise the Lord you're there. Revelation 21 verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Now this is our last reference to all of the judgment of God. Now if you've been with us through the course of this series that we started right around 1998, this is the last mention of all of God's wrath poured out on sin so that we have wrath and redemption put right next to each other, so that this lamb who was just finished, this uh, angel who's just finished in his job of judging the beast, Babylon, the false prophet, the Antichrist, Armageddon has happened, the millennial kingdom has happened, now we're looking again at one of these angels in divine service of God's purposes, who has poured out his wrath, is now going to show you the mirror image 
the wrath, the bowls of wrath were poured out on the kingdom of the beast, the kingdom of Babylon, and now we're going to see a comparative city. It's the anti-Babylon city, the new Jerusalem. And here comes this angel to show him this picture. Seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. He spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride. Now, we've heard about the bride up to this point, haven't we? We talked about the rejoicing that happened in Revelation chapter 19 where the bride had made herself ready. And there was this blessing that was given from heaven that blessed are all those who were invited to the marriage supper of the land. And again, now we're going to see this new Jerusalem. But she's not only a bride. The bridal imagery, the betrothal period, the wedding feast, and now as we move into the consummated relationship of bride and groom that's about to happen here is explained by what the bride is called next. You see what she's called? She's not just called a bride. She's called what? The wife. You're a bride once. You're a wife forever. That you have an eternal reality of God being with his people married together. It's the only spot in the Bible where the anticipation is now over. Fulfillment is here. The relationship is solidified. And now into eternity future, she will be the wife forever. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now here's what you're gonna see. You're gonna see New Jerusalem, the city, and then you're gonna see uh, the garden. We're going to go through the city in the end of Revelation 21, then we're going to see the garden in Revelation chapter 22, the first few verses that we'll look at here today. But the ideas that you're going to have in this brilliant image, this image of captivating beauty, are images that marry people and place. Now for us, if you know Jesus Christ, you know that this world is not your home, amen? But you are known by God. You are loved by God, that he has a purpose for your life, that your sins are forgiven. You have a new status. You're adopted into the family of God. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son. You have a new status. You are, have a new relationship with God, but you're not in the new place yet. Right? We are not there yet. But here, they're going to come together. You're going to have people in place married together. Now look at verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, which means the new heaven and the new earth is going to have significant topography. Look up that word if you don't know what that is. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So we're joining what has been only anticipated through the book of Revelation. In heaven, we have seen a variety of furniture. You've seen the throne room, you've seen the altar, you've seen the Ark of the Covenant of God, and now you have the heavenly city. And the heavenly city descends from heaven as the new heavens and earth are created, and it becomes the capital center of God, visible, dwelling with his people on this new heaven and new earth. And this city is brilliant. This city is called a jasper, probably not the term that we use for a jasper today. I believe a jasper is like a green stone. In John's day, it's probably the diamond. This is a city of brilliant light. First Timothy says that God dwells in unapproachable light, and this will be the reality of his dwelling with his people, that his, this people and place will be joined together in this brilliant, radiant explosion of color. Like a jasper, clear as crystal. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. Now you're going to see three groups of people that make up this new heavenly city. And they're all going to be distinctively defined. We don't get to heaven and all melt into one kind of people who are all beige. But you are going to have both unity and diversity. And complete holiness and purity. The first group of people are the angels. At the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. There's your second group of people. Verse 13, on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. Anybody uh, an architect? Nobody is an architect? You're kidding me. 
I always struggle. I am not good at seeing 3D images in space in my mind. I had a roommate, the best, the best man in my wedding, was an art, was a, had an architectural background. He could always think about 3D images and move them in his mind. And this is so hard for me. But I'm glad that God gives us um, these so that you can get a picture in your mind's eye of what this is because it's a square, it's a cube. And I can think of a cube in my mind. I can do that. Uh, and it's ordered in such a way that we'll see that as you go. But you have three different groups of gates, three, six, nine, twelve, all with inscribed the names of uh, God's Old Testament covenant people, which show you that God has been faithful to his word to fulfill his promises toward his Old Testament covenant people Israel, right? That's why they're there. That's why they're seen, that God has been faithful to his word. Verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, that God has been ultimately faithful to his New Testament covenant people, the church. That the church is called in Ephesians chapter 2, it's called as being, it's said uh, that it is built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. That that provides uh, our understanding that as you step into eternity future, you have God's elect angels, you have God's elect Old Testament covenant people, and you have God's elect New Testament covenant people all brought together in complete unity in the new Jerusalem, on the new heavens, and the new earth. Now, what you're going to see is this description continues to go forward as the anti-Babylon, the anti-center of what was Antichrist's empire, now we're going to see the center of the Lamb's empire and the center of God dwelling with his people. The Babylonian city, the one last world power set up against God and his people, and the Lamb was characterized by perversion and corruption and indulgence and uh, demands that you would worship the Antichrist. Well, now you're going to see a, a contrast here to the kind of city that is set up by the Lamb. Look at the dimensions in verse 15. The one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Back in chapter 11, you remember how the temple was measured by John? John was given a reed to measure out the temple and said the courts of the, of the Gentiles was given over to the nations. And it's a picture of God measuring out with ownership the things that are his. God marks this out to let you know that everything in the New Jerusalem belongs to him. It all flows from him. He's the source of all of its life and all of its beauty. A maraud of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Verse 16, the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city as its rod, 12,000 stadia. Now, you probably have a note in your Bible somewhere. You have that. It, it gives you an amount of, uh, amount, a length, a, a size of this city. Commentators say it's as big as Canada to the Gulf of Mexico and Dallas to L.A. So if you carve out about half of the U.S., that's about how big this city is. Its length and width and height are equal. Now, you can imagine 1,300, about 1,380 is the, is the amount of space or... Um, the size, the amount of size, I don't know. Does it make sense? It's not just long, wide, but it's also high. It's a giant cube. You're into, I had to look this up, you're into the exosphere. What is that? I don't know. It's above the ionosphere and the stratosphere and the helosphere and the, I don't know what else, all the spheres. It's high. That's the idea. So there's this new heavens and new earth characterized by this new Jerusalem that is both high and wide and long in a complete cube as the center of God's new heaven and new earth. Not only that, verse 17, he measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurements. Just over 70 yards is the thickness of this wall. Massive. Which is, uh, he measured the wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Why is that there? I, I guess because angels use measuring just like we do. I don't really know any other, I mean, God, God in the new heavens and the new earth doesn't put you in some sort of disembodied space with a harp, weird wings, and playing around on clouds. He puts you in a real heaven, real earth, real place, real uh, experiences of setting your feet on a place with real measure, real distance, real time, space, matter. He recreates everything for us to exist in a place with location, and distance 
so that we would experience life as, as redeemed, not just souls, but bodies. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. He said, we're waiting for our glorification, the adoption of our bodies. That we will be real, not disembodied souls. We will be real people forever into eternity future. Verse 18, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. You have brilliant colors of reds and greens and blues and yellows and everything is radiating with a rainbow-like beauty throughout this city. It's transparent and, and brilliant and refracting the light of the glory of God. There are no shadows anywhere in this place because light captures the entirety of the new Jerusalem. Now, you may be going, Steve, okay. What does that matter? Why does it matter that we have this brilliant picture of light refracting all around the New Jerusalem? Why does that matter? I want to draw your eyes just to one thing that I think is an important idea as we marry both people and place, okay, when they're brought together in this reality. We have the representatives of the angelic courts of heaven who are here. We have the representative of God's Old Testament covenant people, Israel. We have representatives of the New Testament covenant people all within this central city, this central capital of the new heavens and the new earth. And they're called, as you look at them, as being adorned. Adorned is a word that's used in the New Testament. Um, it means essentially to put in order. It's a word that we get the word cosmetics from. It's used in Titus chapter two of people who uh, in their behavior, in everything, adorn the gospel of our savior. That they make the Christian faith through their behavior and through their faith and through the things that they are choosing to do with their lives, they make the Christian faith beautiful. Now when we think about God building this, we look and we say that, well, God uses good stuff to build, doesn't he? He uses excellent things. He uses gems that are incredibly worth, uh, that are worth incredible amounts in John's day. And even in our days, that, that when you build stuff with precious gems, you look at it and you go, it's almost wasteful how much God spends on the new Jerusalem, isn't it? But when you look at a city whose inherent quality is glory and beauty and light, it tells you that you and I are destined for beauty. You and I in our lives are headed toward being beautiful, not just in God's sight, but being a part of the work that God is doing to make us ultimately and finally pure. What does that matter? Well, I think it matters for, for a couple things, that when you think about your Christian life right now, the most significant thing that God is doing in your life right now has to do with what he's doing in you spiritually. And God is so, you remember what Ephesians 5 says about the bride and the groom? About Jesus who loved the church and gave himself up for it. You remember that? That he might present the church to himself without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing, right? That his ambition in your life is to make you who you are meant to be. He's to make you beautiful. And he will stop at nothing to accomplish the work he started in you. Do you ever feel like you aren't who you want to be? Do you ever feel like that there are parts of your life that are outright ugly if you talked about them? 
that there are fears and uncertainties and sins that you bring into your life and into your relationship with God. And then you get married and you find out that now this person lives with me and they see all of the ugly things about me. Then you parent and you find out you're worse than you ever thought that you were. But at the same time that because of faith and because of Jesus and because of his commitment to you that he will one day ultimately present you pure and spotless before the throne with great joy without any blemish or any such thing. That he is so invested in making you beautiful. Is that an encouragement to you? Now imagine what that would do for us as a church. Imagine that instead of criticism that is so common in our culture that, you know, there, it feels a lot of times like Christians have been given the spiritual gift of discouragement and criticism. And I'm looking and I go, I don't think that's a gift. I don't, I don't think that's given to us. But imagine if our, we're going to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper here in a little bit, and we're going to talk about reconciling our relationships and remembering Christ and repenting of the sin that is in us. Imagine that if you, that the relationships among, there's 300 or so people in here, imagine our relationships were consumed and focused on identifying the ways in which God was doing beautiful things in our hearts. Imagine if what characterized our conversations were, hey, I see God doing this in you right now. I see how you're struggling over sin, but, and I see how you're laying hold in your life of the truths about Jesus Christ, that he loves you and he died for you. And I see how your character is being shaped by this season of waiting and faith and trust in who Jesus is. And I just want to come alongside you and I want to say, amen, I see God who's at work in you. Can you imagine that? If we really believe what Jesus says in John 15, that apart from me, you can do nothing, then we should have every reason to be able to identify spiritual fruit in one another and just applaud. I mean, this has challenged me just in parenting that my wife and I will talk about how much of our conversation is correction. Now, there's a lot of correction with six kids. Don't get me wrong. Don't stop correcting. We need to correct. I get it. But every movement toward godliness, every movement toward considering others as more important than yourself, every movement of restraining my words and using my words to build up, not to tear down, should be evidence for rejoicing in us if we really believe that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. You hear me? That this should capture our attention. That when there's moments in our church where I see people pray, where I see people serve, where I see people take steps of faith because of who Jesus is to them, where I see spiritual growth happen and people grow in holiness and perseverance and trust and laying hold of who Jesus Christ is, it gives me such joy as a pastor. Because one of my jobs is that I would help to disentangle your heart from being content and at peace with life on this broken, sinful world. And that you might get captivated by the beauty of Jesus and understand that what he has started in you, he will one day bring to completion as you step out of this world and into the next and into his presence where he will complete the work he began in you. And this is the only place where you're going to receive encouragement for in your spiritual life. You're going to go out and you're going to get a lot of encouragement about you making your life and your identity and your money and your purpose and your design connected to life in this world. But if we are people of the cross through whom we have been crucified to the world and the world to me, then this is the place where we ought to be identifying spiritual fruit that God is working in one another, applauding that God is doing work in you, praying for one another, confessing our sins quickly, acknowledging that apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, I have no hope. Because you are destined for beauty. He is that 
committed to you, where you will ultimately be all that Jesus Christ wants you to be. Amen? He will get it done. And you are on the journey now. And you need people next to you that remind you that this place is not your home. This place is not your home. This place is not your home. Hey, this place is not your home. But you've got brothers and sisters in the room, shoulder to shoulder, who are walking with you, who are reminding you, hey, trust him, walk with him, believe in him, repent of sin, have faith in him. Keep going. Because he will complete the work he began. Verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. This is the only gem that isn't mined, it's made. You know how a pearl is made? It's made because a mussel or a oyster has an irritant and it creates a substance called nacre. And nacre coats that irritant to make it safe and able to be within the oyster that a wound creates something beautiful. And these pearls are gigantic. There are 12 pearls at the gates. Each of the gates made of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Brilliance, beauty, splendor, refraction, everything is transparent. Everything communicates light. Everything refracts, refracts and reflects glory. Verse 22. I saw no temple in the city. Now, this would be remarkable to John, an Old Testament Jew. The temple is the center of the religious life of the Jew. It wasn't just that they had a new city, or it wasn't just that you would go into Jerusalem, but then the Jerusalem city would have as its center the religious life of the city, the religious life of its people. And you would have the courts, and then you would have the, Jew, the courts uh, that would go con- in concentric uh, kind of curtains, all the way in to the place that was the center of God's dwelling, where God would dwell with his people. In the tabernacle, it was the most holy place. In Solomon's temple, the most holy place, it was the place that housed God's glory. But here, there's no temple, which means the religious life of the new heavens and the new earth isn't based on a location or a place. There isn't a spiritual and a social life, a spiritual and religious and socio-political reality. They're all married together. There is no temple. Remember when Jesus talks to the woman at the well in John 4? And she comes and she says, sir, you're a prophet. I believe that's who you are. And he says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is breaking the convention that you would worship God in a single location, and this is the ultimate fulfillment of his words as you step into the new heavens and the new earth, that you will worship God not just in a single place, but in every place. No temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Verse 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth. You know, the kings of the earth in this book has, have usually been a pejorative term. It's been a, a negative term. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with the woman, the prostitute who was seated on the beast. But here in the new heavens and the new earth, the kings of the earth, look at what it says, will bring their glory into it. Verse 25, and its gates will never be shut by day. Why do you shut gates? Protection, right? Gates communicate two things, protection and access. When the gates are open, which means you have no more threats in the new heaven and the new earth, and number two, you have complete and always access to God. That there's freedom in walking in and out throughout this city. Its gates will be never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. That there are kings of the earth shows you some element of stratification in this new heavens and new earth. But that every position that is given is ultimately discharged, its purpose is used ultimately to worship and to glorify God. Now that's a pretty good 
text for how you ought to use the employment that God has given you, how you ought to steward the influence that God has given you. Because in the new heavens and the new earth, the purpose of the kings is to bring all of their glory and lay it at the feet of Jesus. Lay it at the feet of the Lamb to steward all of who they are and every position that they have been given such that the glory of God is seen where they work. You with me? If you are a boss, if you employ people, that now that you have the opportunity to put on display the glory of God with the people that you lead, the people that you shepherd, the people that you care for, the people that you direct, all of that influence God has given to you, Remember what Colossians says, do your work heartily as unto the Lord. Well, that reality continues into the new heaven, new earth. You steward your position for the glory of God. And there's no uh, dark, have you, have you noticed in this city, there's no darkness. There's not a shady side of town. There's not a place where his glory is not seen and reflected. It's beautiful and light and transparent always. Because all of what is done is for the glory of his name. <clears throat> they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now the Lamb's book of life has been used uh, as a testimony to two big realities. It's been the standard for both judgment into the lake of fire, and it's now the passport into the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. That he both uh, discharges judgment from it from the, for those who reject and refuse the lamb and who are judged now according to their deeds and end up in the lake of fire, and now it becomes the entrance, the pass through which I get to enter into the new heavens and the new earth, that I am known by name. Now, I just talked about what our church could be like, right? If we, if we had as our ambition the identification of the spiritual fruit that God is working in each one of us. And last week, we looked at the intimacy of the lamb. Remember, did you see that? Remember that? Where we saw that the lamb personally wiped away every tear. That there was no more mourning or crying or pain or any such thing, Right? The reason I'm making a big deal about this spiritual reality of what is happening in your life and you experiencing that and talking about that in the context of life in the church and with other Christians is that ultimately, as Americans, we wrestle with a very me and Jesus kind of spiritual hood, spiritual reality. That as I have looked and, and studied Revelation, one of the things that has been very, very clear is that we are part of a body. We are a corporate group of people that will know and love and enjoy Christ and God Almighty forever together. And a lot of times our view of heaven is like, what am I going to do with just me and Jesus up in heaven forever? Rather than understanding that this entire picture of a city, a city is a group of individuals, right? So that the image that you should have in your mind is that I now become a part of God's elect angels, Old Testament covenant people, New Testament covenant people, and we will enjoy one another and the Lamb and the Lord God Almighty forever together. That this is not an individualistic view of heaven as it might be thought of in an American theological system. This is a corporate view of heaven where we are all together, which means that as we navigate this spiritual journey together, we will spend eternity with one another. Where God will finally complete the work that he has started in us and we will rejoice not just at seeing him, but to seeing his glorious work in the lives of one another. This corporate reality will ultimately be fulfilled. So that it puts to death this, this fear that we have in relationship. This concealing of the struggles that I have is that we're able to be open and honest with the fact that I have sinned. I have fallen short of the glory of God. I, am, I throw myself at the feet of Jesus Christ to receive freely his grace and forgiveness and restoration in my life. And you need that and I need that and we can do that together. Isn't that great? Isn't that what we're doing here? 
that we're confessing again that we're sinners, we're remembering that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, we're reconciling our relationships in light of the day that we're gonna spend eternity forever. So you move from city, now you move to garden. Look at verse, uh, chapter 22, verse one. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. That their rivers came out of Eden. Here in Revelation chapter 22, the river flows out from God himself and from the throne of his authority. That God himself is life. In Ezekiel 47, you may not have read that this week, but it talks about the millennial kingdom and the millennial temple that the water flows from Jerusalem and it gets ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep, and everything it touches creates a flourishing reality. And now here from the center of this city, the throne of God, the water of life flows. Verse two, it flows through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. How often do you get fruit from a tree? You get about two or three months where things grow and you can harvest them. These trees connected to the water of life bear fruit monthly. It's this constant harvest of life and plenty and joy. Imagine John in the ancient Near East looking at trees who bear fruit monthly. How fast does an apple have to grow to get to maturity in 30 days? Anybody, anybody from the Midwest? Do you, you ever been in a, um, in a cornfield? You know how fast corn grows? Corn grows like, I can grow like 18 inches an hour. It's something ridiculous like that. If you're in the Midwest and you're around cornfields, they grow so fast you can hear it happen. Imagine these trees bursting with life. Monthly harvests of life, of this tree of life. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's nothing sick in the city, which means these are, must be like supercharged vitamins. That life is full. Health is full. We have bodies that don't age or break down and have this constant source of life coursing through us. You know what's interesting about this too? Uh, if you were in our equipping class, AJ is leading an equipping class right now on the, uh, the attributes of God. And one of the attributes he did, I think two weeks ago, uh, was aseity. You know what that is? Aseity is a term for God's self-existence. God needs nothing. He is the first cause. He exists completely independent of all the creation, right? Uh, <clears throat> and when you get to Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent tempts Adam and Eve, right? And he says, you will not surely die. For God knows in the day that you eat of it, you will become like God, knowing good and evil, right? Remember that? In that moment, what the serpent does is said that you can disconnect your life, spiritual and physical, from God and still be okay. You can be like God in that you can be self-sufficient. And what the eternal state shows us is that we will be forever dependent beings and will consistently receive from God out of the bounty of his character and glory and beauty and strength. God will forever sustain us in a life-giving, joyous relationship through all of what he has created for us. That God is the consummate, eternal, and forever giver to keep us alive. And he loves to do it. Verse three, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. This is the great blessing of the book of Numbers. This is the thing that Moses could not endure. God said, no one can see my face and live, so I will hide you in a rock and pass on by until Revelation 22 here. Now you behold the glory of God. You will know him as you are fully known. And that there will be this constant joy and intimacy 
that he has given you and won for you because of Jesus Christ. His name will be on their forehead. That shows ownership. That shows delight. That shows intimate knowledge and relationship. Verse 5, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. You know what that, why do we have, you know what, why God creates in Genesis 2, the sun and the moon and the stars? It said he creates the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night. It means that ultimately we ought to take our cues, not from the sun. See, the sun determines how we do everything. Have you, did you see the eclipse a couple of years ago? Was it a year ago, two years ago? When did the eclipse happen in Charleston? It was an amazing thing. We all stood outside, stared at the sun, right, had our glasses on. Uh, the eclipse happened, the crickets came out, my kids were bonkers, they loved it, and then it was over. Uh, but you realize that when you walk throughout your life, every single decision you made about waking up today to the time that you arrived at church, to the time that you're going to go to work tomorrow, is all going to be governed by the sun. It's all going to be governed by the light around which our earth orbits and around our, sun, our moon, which reflects the glory of the sun on its own. But that won't happen in the new heavens and the new earth. We don't need a sun and a moon to govern our day anymore. We have God who will be the ultimate governor of our life and of our time into eternity future. He will be the one in which we take our cues to live out our lives for all eternity. And they will reign forever and ever. Your Bible has to have an in the beginning and it has to end with a forever and ever. This is the last chronological verse of your Bible, and it echoes into eternity future. Now, let me summarize the things that are not present in the new heavens and the new earth. This is from Revelation 21 all the way through to Revelation 22, verse 5. Let me just list them for you. We said this last week. If you didn't hear last week, you can go back and watch this on uh, YouTube or podcast, wherever you get that. Last week, we said there was no more sea that the sea is a representative of the evil on earth is now removed and now what Isaiah talks about in the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea has come to pass in the eternal state. There's no more distance. Heaven has come down and we see his face. There's no more death. There's no more crying. There's no more mourning. There's no more pain. There's no more thirst, either physically or spiritually. There is no more shame. Everything is transparent and visible. There's no reason to hide because there is no sin any longer. There is no more temple. I'm no, more con no longer confined to an individual place, but now I can live and work and worship all in the light of the glory of God on this new heavens and new earth. There's no more sun. There's no more moon. We have no need of lamp because we have what Jesus calls himself, I am the light of the world. Remember that? John chapter one. He says, in him was the light of men. And we have it here, that there is nothing detestable, there is nothing false, and ultimately, I missed this. You look back at verse 3, look back at verse 3 real quick with me. You see how it says, there will no longer be anything accursed. See, we live now with the fact that our relationships are cursed, our manhood and our womanhood is cursed, that the earth is cursed, that our efforts to create work and produce from life on this planet is cursed. We consistently live in a time and place that is cursed by God himself. It's cursed because it is frustrated from fulfilling the ultimate purpose that God designed it for until Revelation 22, verse three. It's the one time in your Bible cursed is used, and it's used, and it's taken away. The curse that is characterized, Genesis chapter 3, all the way through to Revelation 22 has now been broken and taken away, and that there is no more curse in the creation. Now, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a minute, but that's a pretty good picture of your future, isn't it? Can I show you just one thing here as we close? Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. 1 Peter chapter 1. The most important thing that God is doing in your life right now has to do with your spiritual life. 
It has to do with the areas that you are repenting of sin and trusting in faith what he is doing and the variety of situations that are represented by 300 people in this room. The life of faith characterizes how we parent and how our marriages go and how we spend our money and where we set our hopes. And in the midst of all that, we walk through life in a cursed time, facing a variety of difficulties during our life on this earth. But if we're going to be faithful to understand what God is showing us here in Revelation 21 and 22, then we need to get serious about how we see our life through the lens of faith. And this is Peter's whole point in what he writes in the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, watch this, more precious than gold. What's the beautiful thing that God is working in you? What's the precious thing that God is working in you? It has particular, it's particularly defined, particularly connected to your life of faith, your spiritual life. More precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by, by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Church, the problem for many of us is that we spend too much time with our eyes down here and not enough with our eyes on where we're headed. My prayer as a result of Revelation 21 and 22 is that your hearts would be filled with inexpressible joy because of where you're headed. May heaven itself order your affections, your attention, and your focus as you live life on this earth. Father in heaven, we pray that Revelation 21 and 22 would take hold in our hearts here this morning. All of these promises of things that you will fulfill where we are one day going to be without blemish, without sin, without curse, living in a city of unimaginable un uh, light, reflecting the glory of God for all eternity in fullness of joy and peace and comfort and safety. Would we order our attention and our affection now for the eternal future that we have ahead of us. We give thanks for the truths of this text. In Jesus' name, amen.